We begin every worship service, or usually each worship service, with prayer for another church. This morning, I want to pray um, more generally in light of Zach and Jean's uh, testimony. It's an emotional thing to hear, man. Just think about it. anybody that's a parent can. Hopefully, you're caught up in that emotion and aching with Zach and Jean for that loss. And I'm sitting back there as a preacher slash father and husband, brokenhearted for the pulpits, the churches that each week, week in, week out, are getting messages that if you follow Christ and everything's going to go your way, you'll be rich, you'll be healthy, and if you have enough faith, man, you can just have it all. And that is just baloney. There are other words that come to mind that I shouldn't say right now, but that is just baloney. And man, what, how ill-equipped does that leave God's people? And that's heartbreaking. So we're going to pray more for that general malady. That God would refine that and purify that, that he would keep it true here, that he would guard us from that, that emptiness. Let's pray. God, this morning we want to lift up... Um, in a more general sense, the churches, the pulpits, that either each week or at times are sending a message that things will just go great if we trust you, that we will just have food, money, health, happiness. We'll just have the wind to our back, and if we're faithful enough, then um, we won't lose anything, we won't suffer anything. Lord, I pray first for those pulpits. I pray that those men, and maybe even in some cases, women that are preaching from these pulpits, this message that is not from our Bible, that is not taking in the full counsel, Lord, I pray that you would convict those hearts. I pray that you would bring sickness and loss to those men in so much as it would educate them that you are still good. That you give and you take away and you are still good. Though you slay us, you are still good. I pray that you would give them little tastes of loss where their message loses its oomph, whatever oomph it has, what it loses its impact. I pray that those who are hearing it would call into question how it doesn't reconcile with how life actually unfolds, how it doesn't reconcile with whole books of our Bible. And they would hold those preachers accountable, and these churches would be refined and purified in their message. God, I pray that those churches, as well as this church, that we would equip your people for whatever you have in store for us. We trust that you are good, we trust that you are wise. We, tra- we trust, too, that you are mysterious and you have plans that involve difficult seasons, pain, suffering, loss, and that you're glorified even in those, maybe even especially in those. Lord, I pray that your people would be true, that we would be equipped, and that we would be true. Additionally, Lord, this morning, I want to lift up a few other specific things. I want to pray for uh, just mankind, humankind in the Philippines right now, just heartbroken 
at the loss that they're experiencing, the devastation. Lord, I pray for Christians that are in that context or near that context or who can connect to that context that we would be faithful and true to share a message of a God that's still good and a God that can sustain in the devastation. Lord, whatever way we should come alongside this, this loss and what even seems to be unfolding, we just pray that you would give us insight into that, that we would be obedient and faithful to step out whatever way you call us to. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for service members and their families. Thinking about what we celebrate and what we remember this time of year, whole families really, not just service members, but their whole families that are paying a price. Lord, we are thankful for the picture that it is of sacrifice and the picture in some ways of the gospel when real love is displayed when one man gives his life for his friends. Reminds us of our ultimate friend in Christ. Lord, I pray that those service members' families will be encouraged. I pray that they will grow in faith and trust you through times of deployment, through times of loss, through times of difficulty. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for Derek and Casey. I want to pray for little, tiny, yet unborn Amelia. I want to pray for her physical heart and then her spiritual heart. First, for her physical heart, Lord, we pray that this little girl will will be okay in these first few days, that the doctor's procedures will be well done, that they will be wise, the decisions that they make, that the medicines that, that, that she's given or that Casey has given, that you will use them as a means to sustain little Amelia. Pray for Derek and Casey. They're about to be brand new parents with a very, a very difficult situation. I pray that they will grow in you and trust you and grow in their marriage through this. I pray that the gospel will be on display in the hospital with friends, with family, with acquaintances through their church through this time that they're going to be experiencing here in these next few days. Lord, we turn this time over to you. I'm thankful for the sweet privilege of sharing this morning your justice. Pray that we'll enjoy you in the next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you a little overview of this morning. Well, this morning I'll give you in a second. But the overview of the next few weeks and months. There actually is a plan that's unfolding um, for now through uh, the end of April. What we're going to be doing in these next few weeks, including this morning, is we're going to be continuing in our awe series if you've been around some this summer, when I've been able to preach, you know that that's kind of been something that I've been focusing on. Uh, as part of my sabbatical, I'm charged with rest and uh, sort of refueling and rest and refitting. And part of that time has been studying, just really sort of renewing through a study of awe of God. The things that are true about God that, that seem to decay. And I'll share with you really what's going on there in a minute. But these next few sermons are going to be all sermons, continuing in that series. That's going to roll over into the beginning of December, which is going to be Advent. We're going to spend the, the, the month of December uh, preparing to, uh, really not preparing for celebrating Christ's return, because we're going to spend the whole month celebrating uh, Christ's first coming. So um, Advent will be going 
in overlapping with awe. The first couple of sermons will actually be awe slash Advent sermons. And then the first Sunday in, in January, we're going to go back to Hebrews. So I had a lot of people ask me, when are we getting back to Hebrews? So um, we'll be starting again in January in Hebrews, picking up where we left off in chapter 4. And by the end of April, if the Lord wills it, we will work our way up to the end of chapter 10. So I know that might seem insurmountable, but that's the plan, and that's what we're going to shoot for. So we have some cool, cool things in store, some, some real sweet equipping and worship times in store, and I'm excited about it. Uh, the other preachers that are going to be part of this journey during Advent, Scott and Brad, uh, we're all pretty excited about what's unfolding. This morning is an all-series ser- sermon focusing on the justice of God. What I found in my studies over sabbatical, I, I read one book that sort of leaned in this direction and introduced me to the idea that it's possible to become so familiar with the majesty and greatness of God that you can actually become numb to it. And that in some ways it loses its majesty and loses its awe. And it hasn't changed, we've changed. And what I found during my time resting this summer is I found that it was good for me to go back and be renewed and refreshed on some of these essential foundational things, just sort of character traits of our God. And this morning is going to be one of those installments considering the justice of God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This, I'm not sure if this is home base or Jeremiah 5 is home base, but this is going to be where we're going to be sort of launching this morning in Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to be spending about the last third of the morning in Jeremiah 5. So if you want to kind of put fingers or bookmarks in those two places, you can do that. Deuteronomy 32, if you notice where it sits in the book of Deuteronomy, it's toward the end of the book. Deuteronomy was written likely mostly from Mount Nebo before the nation of Israel crossed crossed the Jordan into the promised land. By this point, they've completed their 40-year journey through the wilderness. Moses has led them from the Red Sea to the Jordan with the 40-year wandering in between. And here we are at the end of the book, which is really Moses' swan song. He's about to die. And it's literally... His swan song. This is a song that he's written, and in some ways, it captures his experience with God. Let's begin in verse verse 1, focusing primarily on verse 4. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This summer, how this sermon sort of unfolded for me was just in a routine, mundane moment, Luke was working on a paper for school, and oftentimes as he's working on a paper that has to do with faith matters and Bible studies, we talk about it. 
And he asked me about the justice of God, so he and I both began to study together in God's word, and this passage just really, man, it just laid it out there. It's wonderful realities about God. And that's how this sort of gave birth to some awe for me as I prepared for this sermon, just from a routine and mundane study with Luke, preparing for a paper of all things. Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses' swan song. Moses, after spending 40 years journeying with God in a difficult, event-filled journey with God. He says this of God, that he is the rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Moses says of God after a 40-year journey with him that he is just, not sometimes, not usually, not on occasion, but all the time. And he is just in all his ways. Luke and I considered together how sweet that is to have a God that is just in all his ways. Part of their kid's study is into the Greek and Roman gods, considering how capricious and unpredictable these Greek and Roman man-made conjured up gods are compared to our God, the true God, the one and only God, Yahweh. He is just and upright in all, not some, but all of his ways. Man, he is consistent. I love that about our God. He's not sometimes just, because that would amount to injustice. He's consistent every single time in his way or in, in all his ways are justice. Not just his actions and his work, but even his identity from this passage says that he is just and upright. Something else we considered from this passage is that his justice is consistent and his justice is also perfect. He is infallible in his justice. If you look at these first few phrases, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. His work and his ways are used in some way synonymously there where his work is perfect and his ways are justice. So if you consider the sort of design there, what he's saying there is that his justice is is perfect. And if you think about it, man, you got to enjoy that too because imperfect justice amounts to injustice. Man, he's consistent in his justice. He's infallible in his justice. He doesn't make mistakes in his justice. Another thing that we consider together, I'm not going to have you turn to this passage. It's a passage I will... I will just share with you. It's in Proverbs chapter 24. It says, these also are sayings of the wise. Partiality in judging is not good. As we studied his justice together, we considered his, his justice is consistent. We considered that it's infallible. And we considered also in some ways, and really in every way, it is impartial. This proverb passage just laid it out there most Simply, partiality and judging is not good. So we can enjoy together that our God is impartial in his justice because his justice is perfect. Our God is consistent. He's infallible. And he's impartial. Just reading happened to be reading through 2 Timothy chapter 2 recently and read a passage just in passing mentioned that God cannot and will not deny himself. So as we're considering this thing about God's justice, that it's consistent, that it's infallible, that it's impartial, we can trust that it is 
It's going to be something we can bank on. It's going to be something that we can depend on because he cannot and will not contradict and deny himself. He is just in all his ways. Now, that's really, 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 really good news when you're in need of some justice. When you've been on the receiving end of some sort of injustice. This is really, really, really good good news for the oppressed, for the downcast, for the hurt. I was reading at one point this summer, just reading and passing, reading just my McShane reading guide, which I highly recommend, some sort of reading guide that just saturates you, gets you inundated with the word. Just reading in Psalm chapter 72, listen to this passage. And verse four says, may he defend the cause of the, of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor in him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. We have got to enjoy that his justice protects the needy and the oppressed. God is in the business of making straight the crooked. When you're the oppressed, when you're the needy, we can enjoy that we will be on the receiving end of his justice. He's a God we can depend on to be consistent. We can depend on him to be true. We can depend on him to be impartial when it comes to your defense. Man, we've got to enjoy that together. Though it may not be on your timetable, unfortunately, justice will be served. You can trust that sins have a way of finding the sinner out. They do every time. And someone who's hurt you will stand before the judgment seat and reckon with their creator. That is a message in our Bible that we should enjoy together. I have to confess to you, I have a pretty developed theology from one passage in one moment in our Bible, really two. But a pretty developed theology, it's not so developed now as I've studied more and more of God's Word, but I have to confess to you, one of the most profound moments in the Gospels for me is when Christ from the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I would suspect that many of you can identify that moment and say, man, that was pretty awesome. It sounds a lot like Stephen's prayer or his last words to God before he dies when he's stoned, saying, Lord, don't count this against them. It sounded familiar. I must confess to you that I have a pretty developed, or I had a pretty developed theology just from those couple of passages. And in studying those couple of passages, I'm a little suspicious of how, how developed my theology was or my practice was from those couple of passages. First of all, the, book, the, the gospel of Luke is the only gospel that recounts that saying. And this gives me a little more concern is that there are some really good, reliable manuscripts that don't even have that sentence in there. I don't want you to doubt your Bibles. I don't want you to go ripping that page out or scratching that verse out. But it caused me to give me some pause. Or I'm going, wait a second. Why would I have this big theology of Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, or God, don't count this against them. Based on one passage that may or may not really be a good, solid verse 
to build analogy on. Where I'm going with that is what is in our Bible, what we can depend on, we see over and over and over again in the Psalms is this message of God giving vindication for his people. And God's people wanting to be vindicated. I realized that I have this develop or had this developed thing that came from one moment that may or may not be a really substantial moment, only accounted by one of the gospels, this ology built on Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When there are psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm saying, God, vindicate me. God, vindicate your people who are being wronged right now. As I'm preparing this sermon on justice, I'm realizing, man, I want to really enjoy that God will vindicate his people. That's something to build an ology on because it's appealing to his character as a just God. A just God will vindicate. Listen to some of these passages. Psalm 7, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Man, it's not ungodly. It's not unchristian to want want vindication. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Passage after passage especially in our psalms, these vindication psalms. Psalm 26, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Psalm 31, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. I think there may be this misshapen, this misdirected, under weird development in contemporary Christianity that says that if you don't overlook an offense, then you must not be godly in some way when a big chunks of our Bible are saying, appeal to, want, pray for vindication. Man, it's appealing to his character as a just God. Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. Man, let's enjoy together just for a moment, even if this may be a new thought to you that our God is just and that he cares for the oppressed. Man, and he is a God that brings vindication. These vindication psalms, the appeal there is wanting truth and light and righteousness to prevail in an injustice. And that's not unloving. That's appealing to the nature of our God. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The thing we can enjoy about our God is that he doesn't miss a thing. He doesn't miss even a motive. 
He has perfect insight into not only the actions, but the heart behind the actions. So when we're on the receiving end of an offense, he will in his time reckon with it. He will in his time reckon with it. He's not fooled. He's not blinded by race. He's not influenced by that. He's impartial. He's not influenced by money or power or good looks. He's not inconsistent in his judgment. And this is very good news about our God, unlike those unpredictable Greek and Roman conjured up man-made gods. Now, I enjoy this about our God. I enjoy just the notion that, man, it's not ungodly to want to be vindicated. It's not ungodly to want truth to prevail, to, for light to reign. Man, that's not ungodly. But as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, man, how do we feel about justice, though, when we're the oppressor? How do we feel about justice when we've wronged another or when we've wronged God? Man, are we as passionate about it? Are you wanting and maybe even expecting grace in those cases, but demanding justice when you've been wrong? I thought about my nature, man. I have to be really honest with you. I think there are times when I want justice when I've been wronged, and I expect grace when I'm the wrongdoer. I would expect that we're all made of the same thing, and that might be pretty familiar. But then I'm reminded that God is still just in all his ways. Turn to Jeremiah 5. Give you a little context for Jeremiah 5 while you're turning there. This was yet another passage I was just reading through this summer, just the Bible reading guide, saturated and inundated with these stories and these prophets that are Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that are just pouring out these details having to do with the exile and the time leaving up to the, leading up to the Babylonian Assyrian exiles. A little bit of context for you in Jeremiah 5 and really the whole book of Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to Judah while he was still a young boy around 627 BC. So just place this on your little timeline. I didn't draw a timeline up here. I, I considered it, but I've been discouraged or I've been strongly um, counseled on that. It's about 627 BC. He was called to be a prophet to Judah, which would be the southern kingdom. You remember there's a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. He had a 40-year ministry during a very difficult time during the story of Israel. The kingdoms divided, the north and the south. And Judah was in significant decline during this period, especially after the death of Josiah in 609 B.C. Josiah was really the last of the someone we might call to be a good king of Judah. He lived real close to Jerusalem, and he made the short journey to the temple and preached many sermons at the temple calling for Judah to repent. If you want to know what his theme was in its book, it's for repentance. Over a hundred times he calls for repentance for Judah. Folks didn't much like hearing this, and those from his hometown actually plotted against him. 
He likely in the end ended up dying in Egypt after the fall of Jerusalem about 587 B.C. He died at some point after the fall of Jerusalem. In his 40-year ministry, he had two converts that we know of. Two. His scribe, a guy named Baruch, and then an Ethiopian eunuch, which is just funny, ironic to me, given Philip's convert, an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech. That's Jeremiah. Now, the people during this time, the people were not walking with God. They're worshiping foreign gods while they're going through the motions with him. What was taking place there was something called syncretism. Syncretism is the combining of different, often seemingly contradictory beliefs while melding practices of various schools of thought. Really what they're doing is they're borrowing from every pagan group around them and worshiping their gods and while they continue to worship Yahweh. I thought it's like a religion version of drinking a Diet Coke while you you eat an all-you-can-eat pizza meal. Which makes you laugh. From the movement of this people, Jeremiah diagnoses the human heart as sick and beyond cure by anyone but God. Turn over. Keep your finger in Jeremiah 5, but look over at Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. You know what's going on with Jeremiah? 40-year ministry, tough ministry, two converts, Here's what's going on with the people. Here's the diagnosis of the people. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, though, search the heart and test the mind. Remember, he's just to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's our God. That's the people. A just God and a very sick people. Now, Go back to Jeremiah 5. Let's just unpack this chapter. We'll move very quickly with a few thoughts as we go. Jeremiah 5 begins with God talking, and God says to Jeremiah, run to and fro fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares, Jeremiah, to see if you can find a man, one who seeks justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. It sounds a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's appeal to God, if you find 50, would you spare it? Would you find 40? Works his way all the way down to 10, but there isn't, there's not 10 righteous people in Lot or in, in, in Sodom or Gomorrah. Lot and his family are the only ones that make it out, minus his wife. It sounded especially familiar. We're talking about Jerusalem here. We're not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. It gives you some little glimpse into the condition of this people. Run to and fro, searching her squares to see if you can find just a man. Find me a man who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her, the city. Man, they're in bad shape. God says, though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. Man, they're all talk. They're saying the right things, but their heart is far from him. Now, before you think of them as them, just think for a moment how easy it is for you to say all the right things, but your heart to be far from him. I've made a practice of being very vulnerable from this pulpit, so I'm going to be very vulnerable right now. I'm not going to tell anything of my family so everybody can exhale. 
on the front row there. <sighs> there are times where I'm not feeling it. It's rare, but there are times where this feels like a job. Usually it feels like a calling. I'm usually fueled by that, fueled by worship. But there are times where I'm like, oh, man, I just I got to go stand and deliver, but I ain't feeling it. I don't even want to be around God's people right now. I'm confessing to you. What I've found in 10 years of ministry is that sheep are sheep, and sometimes sheep bite. And, man, there's times where I just, man, I, need, I ain't feeling it, God. Why'd you call me to do this? Little taste that I've had, being really honest with you, little taste that I've had. Thankfully, I haven't moved in, but I have visited there. And the little times that I think acquaint me with what it may be like if you actually move in and live in a place where you say all the right things, but your heart is far from him. Can any of you relate to that? Do you ever have times where you're like, man, I know I'm supposed to smile and say everything's all right right now, but... I'm not really enjoying faith. I'm not really enjoying life right now. And I'm not really even enjoying you, though I'm smiling and glad-handing you. <laughs> I hope by the laughter, there's some sense that it's something that you can identify with. Man, the potential is there for people to just move in and live there. And that seems to be the case here. They're saying all the right things. They're drinking the Diet Coke. But they're eating all-you-can-eat pizza. And their hearts are far from it. In verse 3, Jeremiah starts talking. Let's hear what Jeremiah says. Oh, Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They've refused to repent. What he's talking about is the consequences of their sin over about a 300-year period where they've had one king after another that's been, most of them have been bad kings. Where the kingdom has split, where they've experienced war, where they've experienced famine, they've experienced the consequences of their sin, and Jeremiah is saying, man, you may be right, God, because they've had some crazy stuff happen to them, and they didn't learn the lesson yet. It's a hard-headed bunch. And then in verse 4, he says, then I said, Jeremiah's going to give them the benefit of the doubt. He says, these are only the poor. They have no sense for they don't know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I'm going to go to the great and I'm going to speak to them for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Jeremiah's saying, okay, I went to and fro and I'm looking around for a righteous man and I'm thinking, man, these are poor, beaten down people. They just forgot that God is just. Let me go find somebody great and let me tell him and what I found there when I'm talking to somebody great who ought to have their head on their shoulders is he's broken the yoke and broken free. It reminds me of my dog. I have a three-year-old dog named Major. Clay Petzold was laughing about this last night. I take him hunting. I take him dove hunting out to Clay Petzolds and have the last couple of years. And the last couple of years, this has, this has characterized our hunting trip. Major, Major, come here. Major, get over here. Shouting across the field the whole time trying to get my dog to come to me. Now, that's not the case now because he's learned it. He's on. But as I'm thinking about them breaking the yoke and bursting the bonds, I'm thinking about what my goofy dog is like when he gets off the leash. He's gone. He's like a bullet. He's not listening to anything I have to say to him. 
I can make all the promises in the world or all the threats in the world, but he's gone. He doesn't even hear me. And that's the case right here with the nation of Israel. For the poor and the great, they've broken off the leash. They've broken the yoke, and they're not listening to God. And in verse 6, Jeremiah says, Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. Predator number one, a lion. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. Predator number two, a wolf. A leopard is watching their cities. Predator number three, the leopard. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. Jeremiah says, God, you know what? You're right. This people is sick. They are sick. This people is messed up. They've broken free of their leash. They've broken free of their yoke. And then God starts speaking again. Here's what he says. The first of three questions in this chapter that God asks, he says, how can I pardon you? What you should hear in that is because I'm just. How could I possibly wink at your sin, Israel, Judah specifically? Because I'm just. Remember 2 Timothy? He does not deny himself. He's just in all his ways. How can I possibly pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. They've sworn by those who are no gods eaten all the pizza they can stuff in themselves. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and truth to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Man, that's pretty rough. Here's a second question. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? How could he not? He's just. He says, go through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. A little taste of his mercy right there. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, ah, he's not going to do anything to us. He's not going to do anything to us. He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. You hear what he's saying there? God's saying, you know what? These guys are sitting around saying, judgment's coming. Justice is going to be meted out. They said, ah, nothing's going to happen to us. And you know what they're saying about Jeremiah? This has got to be sort of discouraging to Jeremiah. I don't know what point in his ministry this took place, this part of the conversation between Jeremiah and God. But God is telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, your sermon is just going to sound like wind. They're going to call you a windbag. <laughs> that old windbag, Jeremiah, he's so over the top. He gets so worked up over stuff, man. Peace, peace. That's what the other priests are saying. It's all good. You remember who God is? He's good all the time. Going back to our prayer at the beginning of the morning. Nothing bad ever happened to you. It's going to be fine. Therefore, the verdict. The verdict unfolds in these next few verses. Therefore, the Lord Therefore, says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you've spoken this word, because I'm, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Jeremiah, they're going to think you're a windbag, but in reality, the words that are only bringing Baruch and Ebed-Melech life are going to bring judgment on them. 
Your words are going to be fire, and they're going to be firewood. Behold, I'm bringing against you, Judah, a nation from afar. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. He's speaking of Babylon for Judah, and he's speaking of Assyria for Israel. It's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. Mercy. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Scratching your head. Huh. You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in the land that is not yours. Man, you want to talk about justice? That's justice right there. Hear that last verse again. As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in their land. Man, I'm going to tell you what, I read that passage right there, and I'm like, all right, that's awe-inspiring right there. I can understand how Jeremiah was fueled for 40 years because he's fueled by awe in God's justice. I'm sitting here thinking, this side of the cross, can I do that? Can I really enjoy that he's that just? Can I really enjoy that the nation of Israel was sticking his nose in their trash? And he said, you know what, I am not a chump, and I will not be mocked. And I will serve justice because that's who I am. Can I enjoy that? Can I enjoy that this side of the cross? I confess to you I did. And I confess to you I do. Because the justice is poetic. It's perfect. It's appropriate. It's fitting. As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in their land. Man, that's enough for Moses to write a song about. It's funny. Think about this. This is like kind of a little side note. Aaron and I, Aaron Hamilton and I were talking this week, and I talk with whoever's leading worship or whoever's preaching. They talk with whoever's leading worship that week, and we talk about what, what can we sing and enjoy in song together. And we were kind of like, there aren't a whole lot of songs about his justice. I mean, think about it. There aren't a lot of songs about his justice. But just enjoying his justice for justice' sake, Man, that's what fueled Jeremiah. This chapter closes with the rest of, I mean, following on, continuing with this message, this people, this chosen people in verse 23, this offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has a stubborn and rebellious heart, and they've turned aside and gone astray. Verses 25 through 28, God says, your sin has turned you and your evil hands has no bounds. You judge not with justice. And then the end is the third question, the last question of the chapter. Shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself? Asking the question as if, yes, I can. And yes, I will. 
What I hope to do with this second part of this sermon where we consider how do we handle justice? What do we do with justice when we're on the receiving end of justice? I hope and I pray that what we've done in these last few minutes is develop an itch right square in the middle of your back. An itch that you just, man, you can't wait to get scratched, but it's there. And here's the itch, that God is just consistently, infallibly, impartially, even poetically, all his ways are just, and man's heart is desperately sick and deceitful. That's the itch. It's right in the square middle of your back because that's not just Israel's problem. What would have made the last few minutes really easy, which may have been something that you did, like those Israelites, they sure were crazy. They sure were messed up. Golly, not like me. I'm not like them at all. We're different. Those Israelites, though, they were a mess. I want to ask you to consider that this message is not just about those Israelites. It's about this new Israel, too. It's about you as well. Israel's problem was the human problem. Man, the heart is deceitful. Above all else, it's desperately sick. Who can even know it? How do you cope with God's justice as you're hearing these sort of messages on his justice? Are you thinking, man, those Israelites sure were messed up? Or are you thinking, I sure am glad I'm this side of the cross and God isn't like that anymore? Are you thinking that? I'm going to shed some light on that in a minute. I sure am glad God isn't like that anymore. He's not just like that now. Remember, he's just in all his ways. Does his justice alone leave you in awe? I'm going to ask that question first. Do you like seeing a God that is so consistent and so true that he will not deny himself when someone is just smearing his face in it that he is going to take action? Do you like seeing a God who's not a chump? Do you enjoy that about our God? Now, take out of the fact that it's, uh, that it's us that pushes his face in it. Just enjoy it for his sake. Just enjoy. Can you appreciate his justice? Now, let me ask you this. Do you think his justice has now been replaced with grace? Do you think his justice has been replaced with grace and that now justice is moot. That is, unless you've been wronged in some way. His justice is moot. Well, let me tell you this. The good news that we enjoy as a church, as a people, as Christians, isn't that his justice has been replaced with grace. That is not good news. The good news is different. The good news that we enjoy together in the gospel of what took place on the cross is that justice and grace took place on the cross. God did not deny himself and has not ever since then for those who are walking in, in faith and trusting in Christ and walking under the shadow of the cross. He hasn't somehow parked his justice. He hasn't somehow become an absent somehow void of justice. 
I realized as I was preparing this sermon, I wrote this little scrawl, this picture on my hands and I sent it out to the staff and they all encouraged me, dared me to put it up as a slide on my palm. That would take it to a whole nother level right there. I didn't do it. But what I drew on my hand, I'm sitting at the allergy clinic waiting on my shot and I'm drawing on my hand there a seesaw and realizing I think that's probably the way maybe I viewed justice and grace for most of my life. If justice is increasing, then grace is decreasing. They're inversely related. So if grace goes up, then justice must go down, that they're somehow inversely related. And what I realized as I studied this, man, the cross, justice, and grace were both absolutely and perfectly administered at the cross. That's the good news that we enjoy together. God's justice, here's the scratch in the middle of your back. For those of us that are sick, that have a heart, It's a sick, deceitful heart. And those of us who want to commune and fellowship with a just God who is just in all his ways, here's the scratch for the middle of your back, that God's justice was directed squarely on Christ. He did not deny himself in any way because he is just in all his ways. And that Christ, when he bore that justice, he did it in our place. That's the good news that we enjoy week after week after week. That's the good news and the gospel that we believe in. That's the gospel that we treasure. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When I was talking with Aaron Hamilton about it this week, he said, man, that sounds like propitiation. You want to talk about propitiation? I was like, well, no, I mean, we've already dealt with that. And I realized this is like eight years ago. It's right here for me. And I hear people at Crosspoint using that word from time to time. Aaron's a great example. It sounds like propitiation. And I realized, man, we've got people here now that have never heard that word before. It's used three or four times in our Bible. It's not some big, hefty theological term that people only use at seminary. It's in our Bible. It's in your version, unless you have some sort of weird, lame version The word propitiation means wrath absorber. That's, a, that's my definition. Wrath absorber. Christ became wrath absorber for you and for me. He received the full weight of justice in our place. That's the good news. Justice and grace are not inversely related. They come to bear fully on the cross. I thought about an illustration that might help you. Well, let me say this before I share the, share the illustration. It's something I, I underlined and bolded in my notes, so it's very important. Very important. Right there. He didn't just give you a pass. You need to hear that. He didn't just give you a pass. His son took your punishment every single stripe. Every single stripe. He received God's justice and in so doing became a conduit of his grace. The only conduit. Now, here's the illustration. I was talking with my family about this earlier this week. Had a little family Bible study time. We were talking about the sermon. I talk with anybody that stands still about it before I have a chance to preach it because it helps, helps, you know, talking with my family. And I said, you know, it'd be like this. I said, be like, Evan, 
we have chores for our kids. We have a little chore list on a calendar set up. And it'll be like Evan not doing her chores and she's due punishment. We have, you know, like kitchen duty. Let's say, for example, she didn't do kitchen duty that day. And we probably wouldn't handle it this way, but just for the sake of a story, just say, well, this, she's going to be punished. The punishment would really be that they wouldn't get their allowance, but we're going to make this story work. So I say I call her into the room. I say, Evan, sit down. Um, you didn't do the chore that I asked you to do, so you're going to be punished now. And you know that justice says if you've transgressed my rules, that you need to be punished for that, right? And she knows, yeah, okay, yes, I got that, Dad, okay. And I say, okay, well, it's time to punish you now. Let's go into the bedroom. And I'm, I haven't spanked Evan in years, but that's why the story breaks down again. But just imagine that I pulled out our little paddle, just so you think it's not like some sort of thorns and nails sticking out of it, like I'm some sort of ogre or something. It's a little bitty strap of... of uh, bendable rubber plastic that's like bedliner. I'm being vulnerable. You know, this is what we do in our house, like bedliner. So, but it hurts, but it's not going to like bruise them or hurt them, you know. But our kids are well acquainted with it over the years. So <laughs> let's, let's say I'm taking Evan into the bedroom saying, okay, Evan, I'm, I'm going to take you in there and spank you. But about that time, before Evan gets her due, Daniel comes downstairs and says, hey, Dad. Now, I was sharing this story with the staff this week, and I got really emotional. And then by the end of the week, I'm really laughing about it, because this would never happen in our house. <laughs> but Daniel comes down the stairs and says, hey, Dad, um, I'll take her punishment. He willingly offers up himself in her place. The gospel displayed in that scenario is not, Evan, you're guilty, and I'm going to give you a pass, so go on about your way. That's not the gospel. The gospel displayed in that scenario would be Daniel willingly offering up his own self, saying, I'll take her licks. I'll take her stripes. If he didn't do it willingly, it would be, it would be an injustice. But he did it willingly, and he's allowing me to still remain just. But he's making a way for grace for Evan. You want to see what it looked like? That's what it looked like. Now, Here's where we go with this. <laughs> I was thinking how this might play out for you. Scott and I were having a conversation about this all week. As parents, this is the only little application illustration I'm going to have for you as parents. Later on this week, I'm going to send out an email to you about the way this might play out with a husband and wife or with two friends or with workmates. But this morning, I'm only going to give you an, like an application of how this might play out as a parent because there are lots of parents in here. This will travel even if you're not a parent. But I want you to think about this. When your son or daughter has transgressed, I don't want you to try and figure out some way to punish another one of your kids in their place. <laughs> That's not where I'm going because that would, like CPS would be like knocking on your door. That wouldn't work. But when your son or daughter has transgressed, you or God or both, you don't necessarily need to administer justice. You don't necessarily, though it's hard for them to appreciate grace apart from tasting some justice. There's no hard and fast, nice little tidy way to say this. But this is the way the story of, of Israel unfolded. They had a taste of law before they had a taste of grace. 
And apart from the law, I don't know that they would have understood grace. So they had to taste some justice. But consider this. When your kid sins in some way, you may, having established justice, if they know what punishment feels like, maybe it's a spanking, maybe it's losing privileges in some way, whatever, then the finishing course is to take them to the cross. The finishing course is not to say, you know what, Evan, in this case, I'm going to show you some grace, go about your way. You've missed the gospel right there. The finishing course that is just wildly inefficient, which I'll speak to in a minute, is to actually sit them down and say, you know what, Evan? Let's together go to the cross. Let's together enjoy what Jesus did for you. He bore the sin that you just committed. So you don't have a pass for the sin. The sin was paid for by another. Let's you and me as dad and daughter sit together and enjoy that about our Jesus. That's the good news. That God is just in all his ways. Yet he made for a graceful out together. Let's enjoy that. And I'm going to extend you the grace that we've been extended in the gospel. And we're going to enjoy it together. Now, here's why that's wildly inefficient. Because when you're having some sort of conflict or some sort of issue with your kid, how easy is it to say, I'm going to extend you some grace. Get out of here. Or when you're wrangling with your kid at Walmart, (laughs) slapping about head and shoulders or something. You know, John Wayne parenting. Those are easy. That's very efficient but it doesn't shepherd the heart. It doesn't tutor them in the gospel. This is wildly inefficient. It will take umpteen times more of your time, 11 times more of your time than it will if you just say, scram, or you're punished. It's gonna take some wisdom. It's gonna take parents praying, God, how can I show my child the gospel here? And showing them the gospel is not. I'm going to send you some grace. Beat it. How can I show them the gospel in this? How can I show them that God is just and graceful? And that justice and grace are not inversely related. There's lots to talk about. And lots to think about there. Preparation for the supper. I don't want anybody to move. When I say supper, I know sometimes we kind of start fidgeting, getting ready for supper. You don't have to get ready. Just sit where you are and just think for a bit. This may be the most important part of the morning. In some ways, what we're doing in the supper each week, take the silly illustration that I used of Evan and Luke, or Evan and Daniel. What we're doing in the supper each week is we're going to daddy's door, bedroom door, And we're putting our ear against the door, hearing another take our punishment. We're hearing the stripes. I can't imagine. I told you I I laughed about it by the end of the week because that story would never unfold in my home. But if it did, and Evan was guilty, and Luke is, or Daniel's in there taking, taking her punishment, and she heard him crying, she heard the screams. I don't think that way, but she heard the screams. How do you think it would leave her? 
I think it would leave her feeling two things. It would likely leave her feeling like, I love my brother. He's awesome, one. And two, I don't want to do that to him again. I don't want to take lightly sin. I don't want to be cavalier about it. I don't want to be flipping about it. Realizing what he did for us in the cross, that supper each week is putting our ear to the door and hearing the stripes. And what it should do, it should leave us with a serious approach to holiness. Something Christy and I have been talking about over the summer, and this is going to develop in these next few weeks at some point. It may, yeah, it'll be this over the next few weeks. Is in some ways we've become so zealous in guarding our reformed beliefs that we're scared to death to somehow imply that works are important. We become so fearful about somehow inadvertently communicating the salvation by works that we almost apologize for anything having to do with works. Yet our Bible is full, this side of the cross as well, with messages of how then should we live? Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians. Just listen. This side of the cross. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Put your ear to the door, men, that are struggling with secretly and losing a war with pornography. Put your ear to the door and hear the stripes. And don't you dare think, ah, grace. Hit him again, dad. Man, don't you dare. Abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body. How many sermons do we actually spend talking about? How then should you treat this vessel? Do you stuff whatever you want to stuff into it? Do you sit around and not do anything physically active and you just die? Publicly? publicly? What then should you do with this thing? You know, it's Gnosticism, a strain, a false teaching in the early church that said that the physical stuff is separate from the spiritual stuff. And Gnosticism creeps into where we live right here, right now. It says, ah, that doesn't matter. What you do with this, that doesn't matter. Hey, this preaches a message everywhere you go, whether you realize it. What you do with this preaches a message everywhere you go. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. We're talking about mediation. Mediation? Is that the word I'm thinking of? That's not the word I'm thinking of. Moderation. <laughs> Just had a little brain lapse. I'm tired by the time I get to this point in sermon, so y'all, I can say anything. <laughs> I'm talking about moderation. That's what that's about, Moderation. 
because of the cross. Put your ear to the door and say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want in excess whenever I want with whatever I want. Put your ear to the door each week in the supper. That's what we're doing and saying because of what he did, not to earn what he did, but because of what he did. I don't want to secretly lose the war with porn on my own because I'm too afraid to ask for help from anybody and continue to die with that sin. I don't want to continue on without doing anything about my physic, physical temple. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Is, this is this side of the cross. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What we're doing each week in this supper is not just habit. It's not just a little snack that just, ah, it's kind of cute. We get to think about it. I do any sins this week. Ah, okay, wipe slate clean. We're putting our ear to the door, hearing a true innocent taking our stripes week after week after week, and hopefully walking away going, how then should I live? <laughs> First of all, I want to adore my brother who took the stripes. And secondly, I don't want him to have to go do that again, now knowing that it's once and for all. I don't want to add anything to his cross intentionally, saying, ah, grace. Man, I don't know if there's ever been a more, more important. I, they're all important. Every single supper we have is important. But the most important one, as far as I'm concerned, is the one we're eating right now. We've steered pretty clear of messages having to do with how then should you live for fear of somehow implying that you're somehow earning your salvation. Let me just say it. You didn't earn what Christ did for you. You cannot ever, 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 ever. But you can sure respond to it. And in fact, we're called to. We're called to. Let's put our ear to the door right now and remember the stripes. Let's enjoy the stripes together and be thankful for them together. Let me pray. God, I am so thankful that you are just. As you just stands alone, even knowing that I'm on, we are sick, deceitful, that our hearts are dark, that we are swindlers, that we figure our way around all kind of stuff, that oftentimes our mouths say something while our heart is far from you. God, as we just consider this morning, just standalone justice that you are consistently, perfectly, infallibly, poetically, impartially just. We enjoy that about you. We enjoy that we can bank on that. We enjoy that you're not unpredictable, capricious. We enjoy that you're not inconsistent. We enjoy together that you are just in all your ways. And we confess together before we take this supper in these next few minutes, 
that what we're due is eternal damnation, period. The best of us on our best day in contrast to a holy, perfect God, what we are due is punishment. And we enjoy together that you gave us the ultimate out in your own son. And we enjoy that capital O out. We enjoy together that the good news is that he bore our stripes. And Lord, together we endeavor to respond appropriately with lives that pursue purity, holiness, moderation, with lives that are fueled by worship and awe. God, I pray that for myself. I pray that for my family. I pray that for our small group. I pray that for this church, for the deacons, for the small group shepherds, for the shepherds in each family, for these functional shepherds, these moms that are leading families. I pray this for the youth in our church that are so easily enticed with everything that the world has to offer. I pray for fidelity. I pray this for our kids. They can enjoy the justice and grace in the seesaw. But you are just in all your ways and you are graceful. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Times I uh, might have a reason to listen to a section of a sermon that I preach or might hear a little excerpt or something. Or might Sometimes I walk through the office and I hear Erin listening to a message. If she wasn't there on Sunday, sometimes she listens to it at lunchtime or something. I walk through and hear my, I'm like, man, that sounds like a windbag. <laughs> And I totally get it. I totally get it. I've sat through sermons before. I mean, I hadn't been doing this. I understand how it can come across sometimes. And I understand, too, how it can come across likely to everybody at some point, but likely to some people all the time. It's wind. But my hope and prayer this morning is that this is a room full of Baruchs and Ebed Meleks that are together enjoying that it's true, enjoying that God is totally just, enjoying together his justice, that are repenting from sin, that are repentant about our sin, and that together are putting our ear to the door, hearing that another one took our place. Man, I hope we're a room full of those. I want to be that. Can y'all do that as we take this supper? Let's put our ear to the door and hear someone take our stripes that we were due in our place. Let's take and eat. What you're chewing up represents the body that was broken. I mean broken. We're not talking about a spanking. Every illustration breaks down, but let me tell you something. That one broke down long ago. But we ain't talking about no spanking. We're talking about a severe injustice, the worst injustice this world has ever known that Christ took to the cross, that what he did in the cross. The only true innocent. See, Daniel's not an innocent. That's why the illustration breaks down. I told you it would never happen. Plus, he's not an innocent. But Jesus was the only true innocent. And it wasn't just the physical torture. There's the torture of bearing every single sin that you have ever committed or ever will. 
this unseen torture, this torture of bearing the sins of the world and then also experiencing the pointed end of his father's justice. Man, when you chew that up, think about that. That's what we're enjoying and being reminded of each week. And I use enjoyment loosely, carefully. Enjoying is in savoring. And this represents the blood that was shed for you and me. Let's take and drink. Let me say this. I'm not going to say anything else this morning. So whoever's closing, I didn't even look to see who. Am I supposed to close? You can close. Yeah. I'm going to say this and then sit down. I've been very attentive this morning. I prayed before we came in here with Aaron and Steph and Scott Sutton that if there's somebody in here that doesn't know the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means. If someone here in here that thinks that being a Christian is, let's, let me go be a good person. Let me get my life cleaned up. That today you would hear what the good news really is. That God is just that you're due punishment, but that he made a way out the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That definite article is important. No one comes to the Father but by him, period. He is the only out. And it's by placing your faith and your trust in him that he takes your place. That's the good news. That if someone doesn't know it or someone thought they had it, that today would be trued up and refined and that you wouldn't miss it. When you share with other people or you're talking about the good news, let's make sure we know what it is. That's what it is. It's not your righteousness. It's his that you wear. It's his that's been granted and imputed to you. It's his propitiation for you. Man, that's something really good. If this morning you've heard that, if you're a kid and you're here with your dad and mom, or your, your mom or your dad, I want to encourage you to talk with your dad or mom about this. The most important thing you think about each week and talk about each week is what you think about God. And I, you may have some really important things going on. I'm not saying that they're not important. But kids, the most important thing you can talk with your parents about is what you and they think about God and what you believe about God. If you're a young person, you're like, man, I need to talk to somebody about this. I encourage you to talk to your mom or dad. If you're an adult and you're here and your mom or dad are not here or whatever, you can talk to me about this. I would love, I would, man, I would, I would enjoy the chance to talk with you about any of this. If you're like, I want to understand this more. I want to figure out how do I respond to this. Let somebody help you with that. It may be me. It may be Scott. It may be Brad. It may be your small group shepherd. Maybe you've been to a small group shepherd before. Don't quietly sit with this. And if you're struggling with some, some sin, some dark sin, some unrepentant, some unconfessed sin, there are people that can help you with that. And I don't know that God's going to let you get away with reckoning with it and working through it without help. That's the way he's made us. You got to humble yourself and ask for it. Don't continue to die in some dark corner with some unconfessed sin. You heard the stripes this morning. 
Let's respond together.